So the whole world was black and white until the 60s. And suddenly the 60s went into Technicolor. And, and the class thing disappeared overnight because we in, in the 60s, people like myself and all the other young uh, people just said, screw it. I mean, the, the old Etonian actors were all desperately trying to cultivate your accent. They call them mockneys. <laughs> no, what happened was it was the writers, for, because uh, uh, leading parts had only been written for people who talked what we would call posh. It was about the middle class, and, and uh, unlike the Americans, for instance, uh, the Americans made war pictures, we made war pictures. The Americans made war pictures about private soldiers. We made war pictures about officers. Yes. If you look at it, you'll yes. see, they're always about officers. So uh, as a working class young man, you felt alienated, and uh, like when I went, I said I was gonna go into the theatre. Everybody said, who do you think you are? So I was getting ideas above my station, you know, uh, to go into the theatre. I said, well, I'm only going to be an assistant stage manager with small parts, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to be Laurence Olivier, you know. Yeah. And they said, well, you won't, you, not with your voice, who are you going to play? Well, who I was going to play, I was rather fortunate, very fortunate, in as much as working class writers started writing working class parts. That distinctive voice you just heard belongs to Michael Caine, one of the greatest actors of the 20th and 21st century. Born of humble roots, Caine is one of the most prolific actors of our time, having appeared in more than 130 films. He's one of only two actors to have been nominated for an Oscar in five consecutive decades. Over that illustrious career, Dad got to interview Caine nearly 10 times, but their relationship extended beyond the studio. The two were very best friends, a friendship that was in part formed by being young Brits from modest backgrounds who took on the establishment in the 60s. Here is Kane reminiscing about the very first time they met in 1962 before either of them had made it. I was sharing a flat with Terence Stamp and he made a film called Billy Budd and, and became sort of famous and not me, but uh, uh, he had to do TV interviews and, and I used to go along and sponge, you know, get a couple of drinks and just have an evening out, you know, and see people. And when you go to these things, you're always met by someone who meets your car and then takes you, shows you a dressing room, gets you some coffee and stuff like that. And this young guy did all this, but he was so impressive. And as we were getting in the car, I said, what's your name? And he said, David Frost. And we got in the car and drove away. And Terry Stamp and I both turned to each other at the same time and said, I think we're going to hear of that guy again. But that's a sort of joke because his personality was extraordinary. Over the course of their recorded conversations, which spanned over four decades from 1970 to 2012, they discussed everything from living through the Battle of Britain. I used to look up every day and it always be planes going over and fighting and crashing. His battle against stereotyping in the film industry. Because I came into the theatre at a time when my accent was wrong and everything, I literally didn't feel accepted uh, for a long, long while. What he really thinks of impressionists. And they always do this very strange voice, which is sort of, as, hello, my name is Michael Caine, not me, Peter Rhodes. As though I am some sort of intellectual moron. I, uh, most impressionists, I think, are scum. And the time he called it quits in Hollywood. Nobody knew what to do with me, and, and they were all rather terrible. So I gave up, and I, I sort of retired. I'm Wilfred Frost, and this is season two of The Frost Tapes, 
In this episode, the enduring star power of one of Britain's greatest actors, Sir Michael Caine. And uh, you said once recently, most of my dreams have come true. What, what ones happened? Born in 1933 as Morris Joseph Micklewhite, Michael Caine grew up in the south of London. One of three boys, his mother was a cook, his father a porter at a fish market. The Micklewhites, in other words, were a quintessential working-class London family. And your very first memory of your Londonness was what? Rotherhithe, Camberwell or where? Yeah, no, Rotherhithe. I was born in a hospital in Rotherhithe, which is uh, called St Olive's. And then they turned it into a lunatic asylum. Immediately. <laughs> Immediately I was born. Uh, and then it's a very strange thing because uh, after many, many years later, I was making the movie Mona Lisa, and they turned this hospital into little offices, and our production office was in the same hospital where I was born. So, so I thought it was a great progression from a hospital to a lunatic asylum to a movie production office. Yeah, which is roughly which the, is the ultimate thing. lunacy. Yeah. Yeah. For the first years of his life, Kane and his family lived modestly, trying to make ends meet in one of the poorest parts of London. When the actor spoke with Dad in 1970, he reflected on his early childhood and recalled the first time he left the city for the countryside. It was in late 1940, the start of the London Blitz in World War II. Um, my very earliest memories are... Um... When the uh, war broke out, I was uh, five or six, when the, when the Germans started to bomb London, they sent us all away, the children. And um, my earliest uh, memories are of a sort of very adventurous um, atmosphere about the whole thing. And we all had um, gas masks. And, but they're not like gas masks that you see uh, you know, on the soldiers here when they throw the tear gas. That was like the adults' gas masks. The kids had gas masks that were like Mickey Mouse with big ears and things like that. Really? Oh, yeah. All the children, they were bona fide, you know, anti-gas things. But they just made them, they, they dolled them all up to look like Mickey Mouse to make you put them on, you know. So we had, we had a cardboard box on a bit of string on one side with a gas mask in and a cardboard box on the other side with two sandwiches and an orange in and a, and a label uh, in, in there saying who you were and where you were going. And then we all marched off um, to the station singing uh, songs. What songs? <laughs> oh, you know, uh, children's songs. Yeah. Uh, uh, Ding Dong Bell, Pussies in the Well and all that. <laughs> <laughs> that was my war effort in World War II. <laughs> <laughs> and Hitler quaked when yes, he heard he them. Yes, he quailed when he heard oh, No doubt. And so where did you evacuate to? Um, Norfolk, was it? Or? No, I, I evacuated to Norfolk eventually, but I, I was first evacuated to a place called Berkshire, um, outside of London. I used to look up every day and it'd always be planes going over and fighting and crashing. And, and I thought this was marvellous because we used to go to the crashed planes and they used to have perspex in the cockpits, the glass. And we used to rush there and try and get there before the soldiers did. And then we'd get the perspex out of the crashed planes. And what we, if you get a hot knife, you cut through the perspex with a hot knife and we used to make rings then we get a meat skewer, a hot meat skewer, and make little dots in it, and then we colour it, and then we give it to the girl we liked as a ring. And this is That's what we used to do with the crash planes. And you were only four years old. Well, no, by that time, no, six no, or seven. Yeah. But what was going on 
What was going on that I didn't know about was the Battle of Britain. You see what I mean? There were planes fighting all the time, and it was declared eventually a dangerous area, not because it was being bombed, but because crash planes kept crashing on houses. And so they took all the children back to London where the Blitz had stopped because they were stopping the bombers here. And then they sent me away with my mother again when the uh, um, flying bombs and, and the rockets, the, the V2s, um, started and uh, sent us to uh, a place called Norfolk, which is um, about 100 miles from London. And uh, there we were, uh, is where I first, in actual fact, got to know Americans because there were seven American airfields uh, in Norfolk where they used to do the um, bombing, uh, the mass bombing of, of Germany. And that's where I used to, we, we used to do all that, uh, we've got any gum chum and all that, and the Americans, I noticed, always treat, treat children extremely well. Everybody sort of thought that in England. After the war, Kane returned home to a city transformed. London had been flattened, but the Micklewhites picked up where they left off, making a life for themselves in what was then considered one of the most dangerous parts of town. I lived, I lived at the Elephant and Castle, which is where they had the spivs and the razor gangs and everything. I was quite safe because half of the razor gangs were my uncles anyway, so I... <laughs> <laughs> and they used, to, they used to have big wide hats, great big wide hats, and they'd have razor blades carved in, in the, uh, hidden in the brim. And if, if you got, they, all they'd do is they'd take the hat off and just do your face. And they always, they always accompanied it with the phrase, sew that up. <laughs> yeah, you'd be standing like that and they'd say, sew that up. And who would they do it to? People who annoyed them? People who annoyed them, yeah, yeah. I never annoyed my uncles, ever. Very no, wise. No, I didn't even admit that they were my uncles. I used to avoid everybody. Were you officially a Cockney? Or? Yes, because uh, um, I come from South London. And also, I, I don't think Cockney is a, t is, is a definite uh, place. I think it's a frame of mind. It's, it's, the frame of mind is that you, you, don't, you don't take anything seriously. I've never been able to take anything seriously. Whenever you get in a serious situation, I'm always the first one to start giggling and laughing. And also, uh, Cockney's always uh, uh, prick pomposity. Directly when one starts to get pompous, they'll, they'll shove a knife into it and watch the balloon go straight out. That Cockney playfulness was one of the reasons Kane, at the age of 10, first took up an interest in acting. In the Woolworth Road, and I went to a, a youth club in the Woolworth Road where I first became an actor in a, in a club called Clubland. Oh, where the Reverend Jimmy Butterworth. Jimmy Butterworth, Butterworth, yeah. He was a little fella from Lancashire, a tiny little fella, but he was very tough. He was a Methodist preacher, and he used to drag all us hooligans off the streets and make us do something constructive. Uh, and I, I, I went into... Uh, I joined a drama class, because none of the men would join the drama class in case people thought they were sissy. I, I went into the drama class because I was in love with a girl in the class. And I thought, in, if, if you do a play... You've got to remember that sex when I was very young, I mean, I'm talking about 14 or 15, it's not like now, you know, then, you know. I mean, if you kissed a girl three times, uh, four brothers came round who were all bigger than you and made you marry her. <laughs> it's like living in Sicily without the spaghetti and the sunshine. <laughs> but any safety Kane found on the stage or at home would quickly dissolve when at the age of just 19, he'd be conscripted into the military. This was 1952 well after the end of World War II, but while a different war was raging in a part of the world far from home, Korea. So I was going to ask you first about your days in the army. What do you remember of those? Can you remember your number, for instance? My number, I think every ex-soldier always remembers his number. Mine was 22486547. Was uh, it really? Yes. It's good to hear. All, all ex-soldiers remember their number. 
Whatever, however much they No matter how old they are, because they're always made to repeat it. It becomes like your name. It's like forgetting your name, in actual fact. You couldn't do it. Yeah. And when were, you, when were you in the army? I, I was in the army from 1951 to 1953. I, I was conscripted, uh, called up. And uh, <laughs> I was very unwilling, um, poor soldier. Were you? <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, terrible. Weren't you terrific? Um, you no, weren't terrific? No, I, was, I wasn't terrific at all. I, I hated uh, discipline and all those things. I was li rather like all the young people who riot in the universities. And you can imagine what happens when you put them in the army. <laughs> they get a bit subdued. Uh, what was the, what was where you rebelled when you were in the army? Um, I rebelled in a very insidious and sly way, which I wouldn't have thought was part of my personality. What, <laughs> what uh, it's quite surprised me actually, because what I did was um, I went into the army and I did exactly enough not to get called out from uh, uh, for being very, the smartest soldier and not to get uh, slung in prison for being the uh, scruffiest one. Uh, my whole idea was to basically keep quiet. <clears throat> um, I, I did have a very sly plot. Um, there was another regiment which was, I was in Germany, and there was another regiment which was, uh, seemed to be having a lot more fun than, than we were having. And they were in a better place and they could get out more often and get into town, you know, with the girls and all that sort of thing. And I thought, I'd like a transfer to there. And so I eventually worked on a very good scheme and I got myself transferred to this other regiment. And I'd been in this regiment for two weeks and they sent us all to Korea. <laughs> <laughs> Terrific plan. Yeah, that's what I say, you know, the real hero I was. <laughs> Kane, however, is being modest. In Korea, he was a frontline troop, a soldier charged with repelling the tip of communist attacks. On multiple occasions, he came alarmingly close to death. Hey, what's the most heroic thing you've done in your life, do you think? The most heroic thing? Yeah. Um, coming on here, I think. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, the most heroic thing. I, th I think the most heroic, heroic thing I ever did, what, uh, say, speaking from an army heroic, heroic uh, point of view, is what all soldiers do is that they just stay there. You know you hear of heroes who run forward and, and sort of kill all the enemy and they get the medal and things like that. Um, I think the most heroic thing is just the ordinary soldiers, speaking in that terms, of just staying there, you know, with the others. Because a lot of people run away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to, yeah, to have not run away. Yes. Yeah. After seeing battle and surviving deadly ambushes, Kane would find a new lease on life. He'd later write, The rest of my life I have lived every bloody moment from the moment I wake up until the time I go to sleep. After his service, Kane returned home, married his girlfriend, and began his acting career in earnest. But getting work was tough. His first professional part was playing a drunk in a theatrical production of Wuthering Heights. At the time, Kane was still Morris Micklewhite, though had at times also used the name of Michael White. Either way, his stage name was still not settled. When I, when I first became an actor, the fellow said to me, he said, oh, so what's your name? So I said, Morris Micklewhite. So he said, um, yeah, I mean, you know, what's the name in the theater? And I said, Morris Micklewhite. And he said, no, it's not, he said. No, it's no. not. He said, we're not having that up. We look like you're the leading man in everything, you know? And so I, I went and saw a picture called the, uh, the Kane Mutiny. 
uh, and I came out and I went into a sort of uh, hot dog stand and I was standing there looking back up at the theatre um, where Kane Mutiny was playing and I thought that's a good name, Kane. And then I thought well as my name was Micklewhite everybody always called me Mick or Mike so I thought well I'll call myself Michael Kane. So I called myself Michael Kane. <laughs> <laughs> And I think it's better than Michael Mutiny, because that yes, was <laughs> A legend was born. But christening his new stage name was not an immediate ticket to success. Kane's first decade of acting was a struggle, a time he called, quote, more like purgatory than paradise. The work he did get was a haunting reminder of his past. His first film role was a minor part in a movie called A Hill in Career. And in a few theatrical productions and radio plays he landed, he was often typecast as a lowly cockney boy. In many of Kane's conversations with Dad, class weighed heavily on his mind, especially the way his accent was perceived by people in the entertainment business. People are very interested in accents all out. Is your accent a straightforward cockney accent now? No, or mine's... Have you, have you posted it up? No, I haven't posted it up. It's just that people didn't understand what I said so I had to push it up a bit in order to get drinks in restaurants. <laughs> Especially in America, where people always go, I beg your pardon, and they say that, and I don't understand what that means, because we say what in England. <laughs> <laughs> no, you, and you, you have to, I think you have to, you have to be able to communicate with people. Uh, and uh, if, if you spoke the way I was born speaking. How were you born speaking? Uh, oh, God. Um, it, it sort of goes like that. It talks like that all the time. It's terrible. It's all out the back of the throat, like that. In the back of the throat. Back of the throat. Yeah, it's all back, back the there. Throat. Talk like that. You're talking rhyming slang. Now that's the thing. That's another interesting thing. Yes, rhyming slang came from the East End of London. Doesn't yeah, it? It, it, rhyming slang came about because uh, my lot, who would be Cockneys, who make up a great majority of the prisoners in prisons in England, because they're great gangsters and. Um, so the Cockneys invented a way of speaking, which was rhyming slang, which the police didn't know. Examples being what? Stairs? Oh, uh, it's uh, apples and pears, the I suppose is a nose, mince pies are eyes, north and south is mouth. Uh, but you get, to, um, you get things like an, an aris, which is short for Aristotle, which is a, a, a rhyming slang for bottle, which is a diminutive of bottle and glass, which is rhyming slang for arse, which of course is a swear word for behind. <laughs> uh, and and you, it, it goes, it evolves that further. What it is is that every time. Would you time, like that again slower? Or were you, were you all right? <laughs> no, what it, how that would evolve is that they would invent one rhyming slang to to say something. The warder would learn that word, so they carry it one further, and so you you can tell how long anyone's been in prison by how many diminutives they know away from the original. To get away from the original. That's right. Once a star, Kane was able to reflect light-heartedly about his accent, but at times it did make him feel like an outsider. You said in an awards ceremony you'd often felt you were on the outside or an outsider. Country yeah, I'd always been profession. an outsider in because I came into the theatre at a time when my accent was wrong and everything, and then when I went into movies, um, um, I was, I was, into, I was uh, reviewed in movies from a class point of view, you know? And, 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 and yeah. there was always that thing uh, um, which I noticed, which is very, very subtle in this country. And I, 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 I literally didn't feel accepted uh, for a long, long while. 
Actually, when I started, they, they didn't say which class, but they, they called me class-less. Yes, exactly. Halfway yeah. between the two. Yeah, but I'd done so much about class, and I retained yeah. the Cockney accent and everything yeah. deliberately in order to encourage others, you know. Yeah. Uh, uh, that if I ever made a success, maybe they, they would see that and not worry about it. And it did happen, you know. Uh, um, even people have even said so. But what drives you mad, though, is when people put your conversation today into Cockneyese. And they always do this very strange voice, which is sort of... They say, all right, my name is Michael Kane, not very people know And then they'll say, uh, they'll say something... Um, um, I want you to go and see this film like what I've done. <laughs> as though I am some sort of intellectual moron. It's like a stereotype, you know, which I detest. I really... I, I'm most impressionists, I think, are scum. They're worse than scum because they, they, live off, they live off you. You know, it's a parasitical profession in, in the first place. And then when they treat you as though you're a moron... And, and you, your voice isn't properly placed. How do they say you talk? I talk like that. Like... <laughs> well, you, you listen to them, they'll go, oh, yeah, they put glasses on. Yeah. The that's... wrong sort of glasses with dark rims. And they go, hello, my name is Michael Caine. A lot of people know that. Well, isn't he good? Isn't he good? <laughs> Just like Michael Caine, isn't he? <laughs> did, did you actually ever say... Did you actually ever say, not a lot of people know that? No, it was Peter it... Sellers. He did a... Really? <laughs> Peter Sellers used to impersonate me. Peter always was the first one with the latest equipment, whatever it was. You know, first video recorder, first Polaroid. And then he, he, I rang him, and I'd never heard an answering machine. And he had this answering machine. And then he, and, and he did that voice. He said, uh, hello, my name is Michael Caine. Peter Sellers is out. Not many people know that. <laughs> and I, and I, said, I said to my wife, Peter's talking in a funny voice <laughs> on the phone. I said, and this is a machine I'm talking to. Because I'd never heard of an answer mach answering machine. And I said, there's a machine in this funny voice that says it's Michael Caine. Oh, that's wonderful, though, that just as uh, Bogart never said, play it again, Sam, and, and no, Gary Grant never uh, said, Archie, Archie, no, Archie, no, or whatever. Yeah, yeah, and, and, you and, never and, said... and, and Cagney never said, you dirty rat, mm. you know. But, oh, that's wonderful. We've added to the list. Yeah. But Kane's accent and background meant he struggled more and more to find work. This put increasing pressure on his marriage. Um, I had a complete uh, career failure. I was 10 years an actor before I ever made a film. Um, and it, it didn't go very well all that time. And most of the time I was married, I was broke or working for very small um, money. Um, I mean, I was aware of my responsibilities and I used to work in, in sort of crummy jobs, which is jobs actors can get. And um, eventually, it sort of came to a point where I either had to um, try and get a respectable, decent paid job, which meant that I would have to stay with it, or else, um, really, I suppose it was the lady I was married to, um, I, let me point out that she was a very nice girl and everything and we were madly in love but I was the villain I, I wouldn't give up my career which is what she wanted um, I, I didn't see the point because I thought eventually I would be so unhappy and frustrated in having an ordinary job that although we'd be together the marriage would be a failure and as much as my 
my daughter would see two parents who were unhappy together the whole time, and there would never be enough money for her to have the education and the sort of life which, of course, she leads now. And so I had to take the lesser of two evils. I took it really on a basis of you only have one life, and I couldn't throw my chance out of the window. Weighing his career and his relationship, Kane decided to get a divorce, parting with his wife of eight years, Patricia Haynes. At the time, the couple had a six-year-old daughter. I don't know whether that was a selfish attitude. I like to think it isn't, but it was really based on money and money alone. And the fact that it would have been two unhappy parents, you felt? <clears throat> yes, I think, I think it's... Um, people always talk about... Uh, um, uh, mixed-up children coming from uh, broken marriages. There's a lot of mixed-up children come from marriages which were never broken, which were very unhappy. I think they're more mixed-up if they come from there. That's the view I took of it. Do you, do you think if, if you'd been successful earlier that the marriage would have stayed together or that you've changed so much anyway over the years that it wouldn't have done? Well, I've seen of other people, success has always ruined them. Did, uh, um, you, you find it all the time as a young man who is a failure is married to a girl, uh, and the minute he becomes a success, he sort of gives her up and marries someone sort of far more glamorous who wouldn't have looked at him if he hadn't been a star in the first place. And I like to think that wouldn't have happened to me, but you never know, it happened to so many other people, I can't imagine myself to be some sort of Superman. Kane's first marriage ultimately ended in 1962 after seven years. For the next 11 years, he would remain a bachelor as he pursued his acting career full-time. And as it turns out, the 1960s would be a career turning point. We were, we were a funny generation because like, we, were born, we were born in the 30s, my, my, the whole 60s lot. We were born in the 20s, the 30s, uh, and, and we were born in the sort of absolute sort of the pits of, of, of depression, you know, and then directly, directly we sort of got out of that. It was World War Two. Yeah. Everybody trying to kill us. Yeah. And then when we got out of that, we went into the misery of the fifties, which is all grey and rotten and everything. And finally, everybody said, "The hell with it. We're going to do what we like." And that was the sixties. And that was the sixties. And that's when it all happened. Do you think about the beginning of the sixties and London, your London? changed too. Oh, completely. It changed because it, what it had always been was that there was, there was a, a sort of class system, is it? You all had to go home on the last tube at half past ten or you'd be late for work in the morning while all the people who made these rules were getting bombed in clubs in St James's or, or, or chasing tarts in, in nightclubs all around which you couldn't afford to get into. No. You know? <laughs> and, and in the 60s, what happened was the basis of the 60s were two things. It was the discotheque where young people could go out at night and stay out and late and have fun. The tubes went later... You know, the tube started going uh, to, to one o'clock in the morning. And then there was Italian restaurants where the waiters would stay up until one o'clock in the morning and you didn't have to wear a tie. Because before that, it was all English restaurants. You know, we had to wear a tie and a suit and you were frightened to go in. And in 1964, his career earned a massive boost when he auditioned for the part of a Cockney soldier in the upcoming war movie Zulu. It was a role he failed to get. But thanks to an open-minded American director, Cy Enfield, he did get a different part, that of Lieutenant Gonville Bromhead, that would catapult him to stardom. I went up to the audition on Zulu to play the Cockney Corporal. In the movie, it was played by my friend James Booth. And when I got to the audition at the Prince of Wales Theatre, Cy was there on his own. And he said to me, I'm sorry, Michael, he said... I didn't know, but Stanley's cast Jimmy Booth as the corporal. 
So I was used to, you know, I'd done 30 auditions and never got a bloody part. And I said, OK, so I thanks very much. And I was walking out. He said, wait a minute. He said, I was very tall, slim, with long blonde hair. You know, he said, you don't look like a cockney to me. I said, what does a cockney look like? It, you know, sort of tough. He said, you don't look. He said, you look more like an upper crust person. He said, can you do an upper crust accent? A posh English talk? I said, yes. He said, do it then. Read that. And I read it. He said, I'll do a screen test tomorrow. And I did it and I got the part. But what it is about the English class system... If that director had been an Englishman, he would never have stopped me walking out and said, wait a minute, come back, because he would only have seen me as a cockney and unable to do anything else. But Sai didn't understand that you couldn't do anything else. Zulu was a transformational success for Kane. Up next, the lead role of Harry Palmer in the spy film The Ipcris File in 1965. Getting that role involves some fortune too. I was sitting in a restaurant with my friend Terence Stamp and Harry Saltzman, one of the co-producers of the Bond films, was sitting in the same restaurant, and he sent me a little note saying, would you please have a cup of coffee with me at the end of dinner? So I went over, and he said to me, he said, have you read a book called The Ipcris File? I said, I'm in the middle of it now. Len Dayton spies. He said, yeah. He said, I own that book. Would you like to play the lead in it? I said, yeah. He said, would you like a seven-year contract? I said, yeah. So he said, OK, I'd come and have lunch with me at Les Ambassadeurs tomorrow. I said, OK, one o'clock. And I went back to Terry Stamp, and he said, what did he say? I said, I've got a movie and a seven-year contract. <laughs> and he thought I was lying. And from there, the hits started to roll in. He would reprise the spy Harry Palmer in Funeral in Berlin in 66 and Billion Dollar Brain in 67. In the middle of that, in 1966, he played the lead role in Alfie. His character, Alfie Darling, was an iconic, cheeky cockney with an eye for the ladies. Famously, many had turned the role down, including John Neville, Terence Stamp, Lawrence Harvey and Tony Newley. Thankfully, Kane did not. He shone in the role and, crucially, it would make him a star in America. What was Alfie like, the character you played in that? What did you think of him? Did you like him? Did you dislike him? Did you, what did you think of no. Alfie? <clears throat> um, I hated him um, because uh, I used to have a best friend who was Alfie. And he always used to get all the girls and I didn't. And when I was offered this part, I made it as a sort of condemnation of him. <laughs> and, and eventually it became a sort of image for me. And you've never looked back? I never looked back. I daren't, in case someone shoved a knife there. <laughs> Whether Kane was, in fact, similar in real life to the character Alfie, he did enjoy his time as a bachelor between marriages. Here he is in 1970. Do you still want to get married? Um, <clears throat> I, I, I know that eventually I will uh, get married again. Um, I've been married once and I, I have a daughter uh, who is 13 in August, so I don't have any hang-ups about any family or anything. I, I already have one. Um, but having been married uh, once, it's not being married that is um, a terrible thing. It's when a marriage fails that was ghastly. And if, if, you, um, if you don't get married again, it can't fail again. So it's, again, a negative sort of uh, attitude that I have towards it. But I, I always um, figured that I'd, I'd get married again when I'd sown all my wild oats. And I always sort of find 
one more wild oat, you know. Just... <laughs> I know the feeling. Yeah, I you know, know the feeling. Yeah. As well as making him a star on both sides of the Atlantic, Alfie earned Kane his first Oscar nomination in 1966. Major roles followed. He starred alongside Shirley MacLaine in Gambit later that year and became prolifically busy in the years that followed. In 1969, along came The Italian Job, and in 1971, Get Carter, both of which led to some iconic cane lines. And it's very funny because there's sort of iconic lines come out of things. I was thinking about everyone says, you're only supposed to blow the bloody doors off, which is the iconic line from that movie. People say to me, when you said it, did it mean anything? You had no idea. that no. It's the same with another one from Get Carter. It, you know, you're a big man but you're out of shape. With me, it's a business, so, and then I threw him off the roof. Iconic lines and images. In fact, I've got a signed print of Terry O'Neill's famous photo of Kane as Jack Carter, shotgun in hand, signed, Dear Wilfred, Happy Birthday, Michael. In 1972, he earned his second Oscar nomination for Best Actor for Sleuth. While Kane's status on the big screen was growing exponentially during that period, it was someone he spied on the small screen in the early 70s that would really change his life. You were watching television, of course, was when you saw Shakira for the first time. That was on television too, wasn't it? It was black and white television. And an advert came on for uh, Maxwell House Coffee. And there was this dark beauty in Brazil with maracas singing, you know, and an awful lot of coffee in Brazil and all that. <laughs> and I fell in love with this girl. And I, I, I said to uh, Paul, my friend, I said, I had a bit of money, I've, I've been in a few movies, and I said, we're going to Brazil in the morning, I'm going to find her, I'm going to find her. And then I got all excited, you know, and it was sort of 11.30, and we always went down uh, a, a disco called Tramp, and I said, let's, all right, we'll go down, I don't, I don't want to go to sleep, I was all excited, I said, just let's go down to Tramp and have a drink. And a guy came in who I knew, and I said, I've seen this most beautiful girl on television, I said, and I'm going to Brazil in the morning to find her. I said, she was in a commercial. He said, what for? I said, Maxwell House Coffee. He said, we make that commercial. In Brazil, he said, oh, that's Shakira Baksh. I said, do you know her? I said, I'm going to Brazil tomorrow to find her. He said, oh, you don't have to do that. He said, she lives in the Fulham Road. <laughs> <laughs> she did. <laughs> it's quite weird. Yeah. And I, I got permission to get her number from her. And then, then she gave me her number. And then she wouldn't go out with me for two weeks. It's quite amazing, because- Playing hard to get, Oh, blimey, she had the cleanest hair in England. Every night she was washing her hair and couldn't come out. <laughs> but I, I, so I persevered. But I must say, I've been married to this lady for 36 years and very happily married. But that's how close it came. On the last night that I phoned her, I thought if she doesn't come out with me tonight, I'm never phoning her again. I'm fed up. Two weeks I've been phoning. And she came out, which was great. Fantastic. And yeah. they lived happily ever after. And they after. lived happily ever after. In fact, Kane and Shakira Baksh have been happily married for 49 years now. You're tremendous together. What's the best advice she's ever given you? Be equal partners. Absolutely. My wife is not the little woman who travels around with a movie star or anything. She's my partner. Absolute equal partners. No secrets, no nothing. Just and don't be apart because what you happen is you start leading parallel lines 
And as we all know from our geometry lessons, parallel lines never meet again. <laughs> Very true, from the maths world. I remember there. that theory of Pythagoras, that's the only two things I remember. Of course, by this point, Kane was incredibly famous and comfortable with it, hobnobbing with many of the most famous people in the world. Who was the person who gave you the best advice for your career, or your life indeed? John Wayne gave me some good advice. Oh, did he? Yeah, he said, he said, what do you got to do, Michael? He said, talk low, talk slow, and don't say too much. <laughs> <laughs> I then made a series of very fast-talking pictures with a high voice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you gave advice that actors shouldn't blink. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, if, you are, if you're trying to hold a strong emotion, you shouldn't blink. Pe people in real life, when they are in a shock situation, if you, see, if you want to really watch uh, uh, how to do film acting, you should watch newsreels. Mm -hmm. And you see people. Um, they, they, and if you're set, telling somebody something serious, mm -hmm. they do not blink. And they hold your eyes, listening intently. And if, if, you, if you blink, you break it. I'll blink now. Yeah, it's broken it. But some aspects of acting he had no tips for. What's the most difficult thing for you to do, Mike? But I find the most difficult thing, actual thing to do in acting, is to laugh. If a director says, right now, here, you burst out laughing, you know, you say, uh, yes, sir, okay, so they go, action, and you go, ha! <laughs> 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 and, yeah. and you almost choke yourself. <laughs> And they, they, it's, it takes forever to get me to love because they always say, right, cut, cut, no. Uh, you know how, and then they tell you funny jokes. Oh, yeah. they tell you fun, and then I kill myself and it says, right, action, and I go. <laughs> 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 but the laughing, if you just said to someone, laugh, that is terrible to do, especially on a set when you're, you're nervous. You say, you're not a, you, in, in a scene, you've not just got to laugh, you've got the dialogue and think everything. And then they suddenly say, you laugh here, you know. And, and the other one is, is being drunk. That, that oh, yeah. is very difficult. Because you always wind up trying to walk crooked and trying to talk slurry, whereas in actual fact, a drunk is trying to walk straight and trying to talk <laughs> With his star rising higher and higher, Kane picked up his bags and moved to Hollywood. He lived there throughout the 80s, enjoying the sunny weather and the access to the world's best film studios. As he reached his later career, he'd have to adapt into becoming a character actor, something he was initially reluctant to do. When was the main moment you made your transition from young leading man to great character actor, as it were? Uh, educating Rita. Yeah. Like, the first instance, guy sent me a script, and I, I sent it back, uh, and... I said, I, I, it's a lovely script, but I, I don't want to do the part, it's too small. And he sent me back a note, he said, you're not supposed to read the lover, you're supposed to play the father. <laughs> so so it, then I went, uh-oh, rushed into the bathroom and looked in the mirror and went, uh-oh again. Educating Rita in 1982 earned him another Academy Award nomination for Best Actor. And in 1986, he would win his first Oscar for Best Supporting Actor in Woody Allen's Hannah and Her Sisters. Yet despite all the success by the late 80s and early 90s, Kane found himself stuck. He found it harder and harder to find good roles that he wanted to play, and so turned his attention 
to a different line of work. And I did a, a series of, of pictures, you know, where nobody knew what to do with me and, and they were all rather terrible. So I gave up and I, I sort of retired and I went into the restaurant business. Very, I, very successfully. Very successfully, I must say. Kane's first restaurant, Langan's, would become one of the most popular in all of London. He'd be involved with seven restaurants across his career. I found this exchange he had with Dad in 1993 fascinating, knowing as I do how much Dad loved a good restaurant himself. I think Dad would have agreed with every word his mate was saying here. What's the key? It fascinates me. I mean, you said once to me, ambiance. I mean, I don't know what ambiance is, but you can have two restaurants, same food in the two restaurants, and one's full and one's empty. Yeah. Uh, I th- what, I th- what, what is ambiance? I, I, I think ambiance is, is uh, where you've got a spectacle in a, in a restaurant. It's where you come in and it's something entirely different from your home. See, I don't believe in, in restaurants which are like home, and I don't believe in restaurants that serve home cooking. Because if you get home cooking, what the hell are you going out for? <laughs> you, you can get home cooking at home. And so it should be, there, there should be in a restaurant a sense of occasion and a sense of excitement. When we opened Langan's, it was a restaurant called The Cock Door, which had five different rooms. We knocked all the walls down. Really, people are basically exhibitionists and voyeurs. So when you go in, you're the star and everybody's looking at you, and then you sit down, and for the rest of the evening, you watch everyone else come in. So the restaurant become a show. Let me add that they've got to be big restaurants. And I used to get bored with little bistros, and everybody sort of eating little things, and, and every now and then someone would clear their throat before they'd spoken, because they, 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 they hadn't spoken for so long. You know, you suddenly hear someone go, isn't it... <coughs> isn't this food nice? <laughs> And they hadn't spoken. When, when you know there's ambience in a restaurant and people are happy, you'll hear that it's very, very noisy and people are laughing because people are happy to be there. And the other way you notice it is that people don't leave. They order another bottle of wine and sit there. Whether it was because of the distraction of his restaurants or not, his passion for acting faded until an intervention from a fellow iconic actor. Uh, and, and then I wrote uh, my autobiography, which took me two years, and uh, then I, I, I sort of goofed off. I, I bought a, a place in Miami, I spent the winters in... Uh, and I was having a great time, just goofing off, and I had money from the restaurants and everything, so I wasn't worried. And they were sending me these crap scripts that I didn't want to do. And, and then one day, Jack Nicholson turned up. Jack. Mm. And I'd known him for years, but we never worked together. And I love Jack Nicholson. And uh, he turned up and said, listen, we're doing this movie, Blood and Wine. Played it. You're already here. Played it, other guy. So I said, yes. And it was Jack who brought me back into the business. I was really dis- disenchanted with it. But working with Jack was an incredible experience. I, he, he's, to me, I think he is the greatest movie actor of, of all our generations. I think he's wonderful. Since that intervention, Kane has been back and more prolific than ever. And an actor who was once typecast as a cockney is now seen in all kinds of films. He starred in massive blockbusters, often with Christopher Nolan as director, including The Prestige, Inception, Interstellar and the Batman trilogy. He's appeared in fun, light-hearted fare, like The Muppets' Christmas Carol, Austin Powers in Goldmember, and Kingsman's Secret Service. And he's won critical acclaim for his roles in Harry Brown, The Quiet American, which earned him an Oscar nomination, and Cider House Rules, which earned him an Oscar win. In total, he's been nominated for six Academy Awards, winning two, and in 2000, was knighted by Queen Elizabeth. I got a knighthood, and 
no one has to call me sir or anything. The knighthood is absolutely personal to me and it's the award I'm most proud of because it's for a life, not an incident or an effort. And I am extremely proud of that and I see myself as a descendant from King Arthur and so I'm all right. And I'm a very English man, although I am a real mixture of people. Sir Michael Caine talking to Sir David Frost in 2012, their final encounter just a year before Dad died. By that point, they were both national treasures. But here they are, back in 1970, two men from humble beginnings riding the early wave of success and wondering whether that success would change them. What what do you think success has done to you? Has it changed you? Has it made you better, worse, nicer? Oh, it's made made me much nicer. (laughs) You can imagine what I was like before. Um, I used to be um, very bitter. I used to have a, the, the Cockney working-class chip. There was, there was a sort of bitterness, a sort of social or class bitterness that I, I couldn't get on because I, I wasn't from the right class. Eng- England is a very class-conscious country. And there was also the uh, thing of not having any money. Um, I, don't, I don't mean to go out and gamble or buy diamond brooches or anything. Um, uh, I mean to worry about the rent and worry about the phone bill and worry about clothing even you know i mean you wind up in a situation where you keep looking at the rim of your shirt to see if you can make it last another day if you don't have enough shirts and all those things get the person down eventually also a sense of failure in the business in as much as i I couldn't do with success what i'd set out to do and so and then suddenly I, i i made movies and all that disappeared very fast Throughout this episode, I hope it's become clear how close Dad and Michael were off-screen too. Indeed, Mum and Dad would always love seeing Michael and Shakira, who have continued to be a great support to Mum since Dad died in 2013. But I also feel like this episode highlights a totally unique factor about Dad when he came to interview these stars. Well, we're going to have to take a break there, but uh, then can we, uh, can we carry on because we've got... Lots more I'd like to talk about. As long as you like. Thank you. He was their friend, and they loved talking to him. And as Michael reflected after Dad died, the feeling was mutual. Here, Michael was asked, what made my dad happy? People. People made him happy. His friends, his family. And then he'd interview you, and he'd be happy to talk to you. Dad's insatiable and genuine curiosity about people is what, above all else, made him the interviewer he was. And uh, you said once recently, most of my dreams have come true, which is great to be able to say. Yes. What, what one's happened? I do, to be 105. <laughs> <laughs> I love living, you know, I, I just yeah. want to live forever. Yeah. I'm terribly, terribly happy. So Michael Caine is 89, and I, for one, hope he makes it to 105 and beyond. I look forward to his next 16 years of movies and friendship and support to my family. Hey, it's a delight to have you with us here, Michael. It's Thank a joy. You, times rush, times rush by when you're here. I hope so. I hope so. I don't want to bore. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you ever will. Thank you. In the next episode of The Frost Tapes, a Hollywood and Broadway icon, Lauren Bacall. My feeling that night was, think of the part 
think of what you're doing and just try, if you can, to forget that your entire life depends upon this moment. The Frost Tapes is a production of Paradine Productions and Chalk and Blade. Executive producers are Wilfred Frost, George Frost, Laura Sheeter, Ruth Barnes and Nigel Sinclair. Produced by Lily Ames, Rosie Stouffer and Matt Nielsen. Written by Lucas Riley and Wilfred Frost. Sound design and mixing by Matt Nielsen. Music composed by Pascal Wise. With special thanks to David Peck at Reeling in the Years Productions and to Whitehorse Pictures. 